welcome to the Hot Literati. The Hot Literati is my collective of cool, hot, well-read people. My name is Haley, and I am so happy that you are here. It is a Wednesday evening, <laughs> and I'm in my apartment. I'm lighting a couple of candles as we speak because we are going to have a nice little chat about consciousness and this like wild but amazing book that I'm reading called The Mind's Eye by um, Hofstadter, I think is how you say the last name. And um, yeah, it's super interesting. And it, the, game, the book itself is very much kind of like mind games. Um, it leaves you just like asking all these questions about like selfhood and tech and evolution and physics, but they're these like lovely mind games and it's a book that I feel like is truly reshaping the way that I think about stuff in um, a way that no other book has for a really long time, so I'm really excited to dive into it. Okay, so I have some like loose notes in front of me. I think I might post the notes on Instagram because I used to be very type A up until the beginning of this year, I'd say, and creatively my organization just kind of like deteriorated. Um, with all my creative work is what I mean. And ever since then, I feel like my creative work has also been like really more fulfilling, which um, that's one thing that the book really has me thinking about is the urge to like maximize or be efficient and um, like the resisting that urge as almost like releasing yourself to some sort of higher power, which Levi Zamyatin, uh, one of, if not my favorite book of all time, says really cool stuff about this, I think. So I'm excited to get into all this nerdy, cerebral, wonderful, um, like trains of thought that I've been on in the past like 48 hours. Okay, so just to provide some context from the book, um, it is, it opens with kind of this exploration of consciousness and like the intentions of the book by Hofstadter himself. And then um, it has different excerpts from like, like essays, stories, um, very like sci-fi, like heady stuff. Um, like there's some Stanislaw Lem, who is the author of um, Sol Solaris, I think that's how you say it. And there's like some stuff from Alan Turing, like these, these thought leaders in these like really large spaces that have like huge implications for the way that we live and the way that we even understand ourselves as like a species and a life force. And um, when I started reading it, I, I felt like I was going nuts because um, the questions that it forces you to wrestle with are, like I said, they have huge implications for the way that you just think about yourself. And um, one of the first questions that's asked is like, how do we locate the self in our head? Like, why do we locate it there? Is it because that's where our brain is, but our brain is not ourself? Is it because that's like from, that's like the point from which we see? Um, and one thing that I really respect and admire from Hofstadter and um, a lot of the writers in the book that are quoted is that um, they're so quick to admit that they don't know. And the older that I get, the more I realize that's a hallmark of someone who's like truly not only intelligent, but humble and like intellectually curious um, and just confident and like comfortable is that willingness to admit that you don't know because there's so much like a there's so much just like content in the world like there's so much to know and it's literally impossible for one person to know everything and b um this is another thing that i think the book really wrestles with is the fact that even our definition of knowledge is subjective like the way that we define knowledge is very much um based on like models like we 
We find a model, we identify it, we define it on our own terms. We're very limited by the terms of our own understanding, which is another thing the book really gets into that messed with my head. And um, so even the way that we understand things is like so fragile. And if one thing were to happen to just like destroy our model of it, then we don't know anymore. And we're forced to like wrestle with the fact that we don't know anything really. Um, and um, I want to quote someone on Substack because I really appreciate it when you guys engage with my writing. But someone quoted one of my pieces the other day and said the most like beautiful, profound um, thing that I just, I read it, I was like, holy moly. Um, the Substack is um, A-W-U-O-R-O-A-W-U-O-R. Um, and they quoted what I said, which was, so many of our issues boil down to a fear of mortality. And they said, and really, a need to establish and experience the self over and over, often through others, seeing themselves through others' eyes soothes them, even if those eyes are filled with tears, often through barring self-establishment from others, so some can have it all and mark themselves realer. That's what being important is. That's what hierarchy is. The self is the first power. Humanity is ultimately still in a juvenile stage, one where it's still marveling that it can even exist and seemingly knows it exists, enough to question why it exists, a stage I believe we've all passed through as children ourselves. And I just, like, wow, that's so profound. And I just, oh, it like shook me to my core. But I think um, Kurt Vonnegut's Sirens of Titan, which we all know by now I adore, says like really important stuff about this. Like at the end of the day, we honestly like don't know why we're conscious. Like we're just here. We don't really know why we're here. We don't really know why we're conscious. And we're creating all these structures to try to like fill our time and give ourselves a sense of purpose when at the end of the day we really don't understand anything including ourselves or our own existence and that's what i think the book really forces you to wrestle with is like the mystery of our own consciousness and just the fact that we are conscious and we know that we are and how bizarre and absurd that really is and um it really explores like tech a lot and one huge question which if you're familiar with alan turing who um is quoted pretty early in the book, and granted, I'm only on page like 140 out of uh, like 400 something, so I still have quite a ways to go. But um, as you'd imagine, since Alan Turing is quoted, a huge question in the book is whether or not technology is or can be or will ever be conscious. Like if we can divine, define um, computers as having like consciousness. And um, it's really interesting as well, because this was published in the early 80s. So the computers that they're like imagining and exploring are very different than the type of technology that we have access to now. And I mean, they're confident like that we'll get to where we are now. They understand like the trajectory of technology and like artificial intelligence and things like that. But since they don't have like concrete examples of it, um, and even concrete's like a weird word in that sense. Um, but since they don't have like models for it during their time, um, I can only imagine what they would say about the type of technology that we have now. Like even me sitting here recording this and like putting it out just by like tapping on a phone is, um, it adds more implications to this conversation about like technology and consciousness and even our own consciousness. Um, so now that I've given that like huge preface about the book, I wanna get to the section that I was thinking about today where I was just like, whoa, I felt like my brain was on fire. Okay, so take this little intellectual journey with me, right? 
So I was on the treadmill. Um, this is my treadmill book because it's like exercising my brain while I work out. It's like the best feeling. And um, I was reading this section by Richard Dawkins called Selfish Genes and Selfish Memes. And it talks about basically like, it's an argument for evolution um, and consciousness and like the development of consciousness. But it's an argument that the only reason that we are conscious and like we have these sorts of desires is because um, we have genes and genes are like the part of us, according to Dawkins, that have a desire to go on. They have a desire towards something like immortality. And um, he refers to bodies as these like survival vessels where the desire, like we have survival instincts because our genes want to go on. And um, one thing that he said that I thought was really interesting but also really beautiful is that um, we don't, like yes, we have a very limited lifespan, but our genes, for example, like are, as according to him, like the one holistic unit that's never really broken up. So even though like right now I'm made up of how many, however many genes, um, they like intermingle, they like dance in and out of like different bodies and different people. And um, I also, maybe this is like the hopeless romantic in me, but I would like to think that there's something of like soulmates in that, right? Like genes that are like trying to find a way to get back together. And I think there's something really lovely in that. So um, he takes this like argument for consciousness and he, like a lot of the writers in the book so far, basically takes this line of thinking and asks the same question of technology. Like, so with this desired state, he brings up um, a machine called the Watt Governor which is supposed to be like a physical embodiment of a desired state and like some sort of machine. And he gets to this point in his argument where he says like, nothing, something technically doesn't have to be conscious to have a desired state, to pursue a desired state. And um, so then he brings up like chess machines, right? Or like chess programs that are playing a person, which I guess in the 80s, that's like peak technology because uh, a couple other writers have also brought it up towards this point in the book. And he says that when a computer is playing a person like that, um, a person can't like tell the computer what to do play by play, right? Like they have to program the machine, they have to let the program play someone, play a human, and they have to step back and just trust that they've given the computer like, or the program the right resources and the right um, models, the right type of like knowledge, quote, um, to play someone and to act accordingly. And this got me thinking, um, that whole idea of like giving some, giving something, someone, something, like the right resources, the right knowledge, the right environment, the right like simulations in its quote head and just like putting it in a situation and allowing it to do whatever it's going to do. Like, I thought that could be a beautiful metaphor for like humanity and God, right? Like I am religious, so it's really easy and conceivable for me to like go there in my head. And, um, I think that's a really interesting line of thinking uh, when you, sorry, that was such a cyclical sentence. Um, I think that's a really interesting model when you hold something like that up to free will, right? Like, of course, we don't have someone like in our head telling us literally like, do this and do that, do this and do that. But we do seem to have some sort of program. We do seem to have some sort of like desired state, I guess, you know, and maybe that desired state is survival. And we're just trying to like perpetuate the genes that want to go on and like want to be together with like another gene that they were maybe with in a past life or whatever. But um, yeah, at the end of the day, the answer to everything is we literally don't know.
but entertaining this line of thought is really beautiful and really interesting to me. I also think my brain is like mentally primed to think in this way because I watched Ex Machina over the weekend um, and the Ex Machina is like very heavily influenced by the Turing test. Um, I haven't read the book that it's based on but I've seen the movie a couple times now and they mentioned the Turing test a few times which is like if you're not familiar you should look it up because it's really interesting. Um, but obviously at the end of Ex Machina you find out that like these women, this like woman who is a computer uh, or is like a program, she's a robot right, like she has a creator that's given her like a something like a consciousness they've given he's given her like resources and desires and she goes out into the world and um yeah i was also watching x Machina with a man guys i think i have a crush and it kind of makes me wish i was a robot so someone can literally program it out of me but um no yeah that's why i was watching it and i it's really just primed it's really like primed my brain to think in this way i feel like um so yeah but obviously in the case that we aren't robots in the case that we aren't computers um, there's something in us that is like distinctly human and I think Dawkins says something so interesting about that part of us that's slow that's like distinctly human that can't be imitated by computers um, or maybe can't be imitated by computers yet and it is the literal gene itself right because if a computer like a physical computer like my phone um, a television is like some sort of survival mechanism for whatever like the life forces and technology then that life force is like um, the program, right? It's like something that is kind of intangible and that has been created by someone else. Um, then for us, like our genes, our like life force is this protein. It's something that takes like so long, like so many years and so long in this really distinct process that is distinctly human to take or to take form. And, um, and um, one thing that Dawkins says that's really striking is that you can't you can't program genes. You can't, we can't like go back to our genes and rewire them. But one thing that we can rewire and is being rewired all the time is our behavior and our reactions to things. Um, our behavior is being rewired like all of the time, especially now with technology, like these things that we've created ourselves. Um, you know, we've manipulated like our brain in a lot of ways with the ways that we react to dopamine. We fundamentally altered the ways that we interact with one another socially and um, I think that's a really interesting tension the tension between this like distinctly human part of ourselves whether it's like genes or the soul or like whatever you think it is and um, this thing that we've created for like entertainment that's fundamentally changed the way that we are as well um, because you all know I'm like very into humanism I'm very into humanistic studies and um, I am warming up to tech. I think Hofstadter and then revisiting like Zimyatin is helping me see a lot of the beauty in like technology and math. But I still think there's a medium. I think there's like a happy marriage. And I think that people are behaving in ways that are fundamentally less human, whether it's like a struggle to enjoy like slow arts or whether it's um, the way like a lack of like empathy. I think like tech and late stage capitalism makes people distinctly more like selfish and narcissistic. And um, I think that's a tension that we're seeing kind of like going back and forth now. I think we're at like a turning point for that sort of tension. And maybe this is the optimist in me, but the fact that a lot of people in New York are no longer using AirPods and are switching to like wired headphones, including myself, um, I see that as like a good sign that we are gonna arrive at some sort of happy medium. And um, at the same time, it makes sense that we are creating this like tech, like it's not for nothing. And this brings me to one thing that Dawkins says about knowledge and um, just like human behavior that I think is really fascinating 
he brings up simulation and how like a simulated reality is not our like real physical corporeal reality right like it's something that we've created in computers but he also argues that it's something that is literally in our own heads all the time like um, I feel like I'm someone who's prone to anxiety in certain situations but I've definitely been working through it as of late um, but being anxious about something like trying to think ahead trying to imagine like different outcomes and having like a physical mental like nervous system reaction to it that is like a survival mechanism right like you're thinking about your different options and you're like weighing each one and that is fundamentally safer than like going out and trying each one and that's a distinction that he makes between like um animals and humans is our ability to do that sort of imagining but i would also push back on that based on another story in the book um about like language and animals like we don't necessarily know that about nature or about animals because the way in which we understand like communication is distinctly human like we will never understand the ways that animals truly communicate because we will never actually be them we'll never be like in their minds in their consciousness um so they can't really speak for themselves and um speaking of like genes and the urge to like move on and self-perpetuate um i was really reminded of this section in the great derangement by amitabh ghosh this like really great but also really dense book about climate change um he cites this study i don't remember who it was or when it was but it was a long time ago um about this man who attached one of those machines with like the pencil and like the needle that moves to a plant and he would like talk to the plant and it wouldn't like respond or do anything and then how one time he thought about setting the plant on fire like he didn't even communicate it and when he thought about destroying the plant the plant had like a physical response to that um so that's one thing that i think is really interesting too is like obviously we're biased because we are human we are this like one species that we kind of understand or we like think we understand a lot of um but we definitely have what Dawkins calls like subjective bias towards a lot um but we don't necessarily know that like nature isn't sentient or like conscious either and um i remember during the early stages of the pandemic there was a lot of like dialogue about nature maybe like fighting back and um Amitabh Ghosh definitely entertains that argument in relation to like climate change like global warming and animal behavior like you just have to look at like the orca whales right who are literally like taking yachts down um so again we arrive at this conclusion it's just like we are so small in such a large like universe and world and we truly know so little and i think that that can be really terrifying to admit but i think it can also be like really liberating and really like awe inducing and really beautiful and i think i definitely have taken like more of a jaded tone toward tech in a lot of situations just coming from like a literary background because you're fed like all of this um chatter about how it's going to like take jobs and there won't be a need for the arts anymore and this and that and this and that but um i think the human urge to like create some sort of tech to like make a little chess robot that you program with like a desire and like certain instincts and you just like put it out into the world and like cheer it on from far i think there's something really beautiful in that i think it's like you could compare it to like humanity trying to play god which a lot of like really great sci-fi explores like ex machina definitely explores that but I, i think it's also like a form of art in and of itself and 
you know, maybe to like some giant thing out there, whether it's like God or whatever you believe in, maybe we're like a little child, like a little child or a little robot, like taking all the tools that we've been put out into this world that we know very little about with, and we're just like tinkering around and killing the time like a child waiting for its parent to get off work and pick it up. Um, a lot of maybes at the end of the day, nobody knows.